Good morning. How are you guys today? Good. Have you guys ever been to a hotel that has a swimming pool? Yeah, those are fun, right? And every time you go to a hotel with a swimming pool, you're going to see a sign kind of like this, right? Pool rules. I just found this on the internet today, but I've seen this at pools. Maybe this exact same sign. This one's got a couple of rules. No lifeguard on duty. Swim at your own risk. I've been to a couple of hotels in my life, never seen a lifeguard there, right? You're kind of on your own, so you got to be careful. Shower before entering the pool. That's the one that I think most people break before they get in, right? I don't know too many people who shower before they get in, but we should because that's the rule. No animals in the pool or on the pool deck. No food or glassware in the pool or on the pool deck. No diving or running. No boisterous or rough play. You guys know what boisterous is? That's like goofing off. None of that. No goofing in the pool. Children under the age of 14 shall not use the pool without a parent or adult guardian in attendance. (gasps) Got to have a parent around. Rules like this are important because if you went to the hotel pool and there was no rules and all of a sudden the the person who's running the the front desk came in and started yelling at you for breaking rules you didn't even know were there, that'd be kind of frustrating, Right? How are you supposed to keep the rules if you don't even know what they are, right? The people at the hotel, they want you to know what the rules are, so what do they do? They make a sign like this, and they put up the rules so that you know what is expected of you. Today, we're going to talk about God's rules, what God expects of us. We're going to hear a guy ask Jesus a question well, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What, what are God's rules? What do I need to do? I want to make sure I know what God expects of me so I could do what God wants me to do. See, there's a problem, though. God's rules are not like these pool rules. You could keep these pool rules. You're, you're able to do it, right? But God's rules are so hard and they're so complex and they're so thorough that we are not able to do them, not perfectly. And God demands that we do them perfectly. And so we have this problem. God has pretty clear expectations for us, and we're not able to live up to those expectations. Well, this is why Jesus matters. Jesus, our Savior, saved us by dying on the cross. We we know that. But before he died on the cross, he obeyed God's rules perfectly. Every single one of them. He never failed to obey God's rules. And it's that truth that makes Jesus our Savior. He's not just a nice guy who died on the cross. He's the perfect Savior who always obeyed all of God's rules so that he could pay for our sins with his perfect life. Today we're going to ask God to, to be with us as we listen to his word and learn more about what God expects and what God has done to save. Heavenly Father, we ask you today to make your expectations of us as clear as they've ever been. We ask you'd help us to see our need for our Savior Jesus and to better understand just how perfect of a Savior he really is. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The portion of God's word that we'll focus our attention on for a few minutes this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10. Then Jesus turned to his disciples and said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings wanted to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, 
What must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? Jesus replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. This is the gospel of the Lord. Please be seated. Let's pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So as many of you know, the school year is upon us or about to be upon us. Our oldest four all started school this last week. And the oldest three, they're old enough now where the teachers don't come to the house for those in-person visits anymore, but our, our youngest one in, in school, Julieta, she's in first grade this year. Her teacher came for a home visit a few weeks ago. And, you know, to get to know each other, that's, that's a big part of it. But one of the things was to, to kind of lay out what's expected for, for first grade so that the kids going in kind of know what they're getting into. And at one point, Julieta she crossed her legs and put her hands on her lap and she said very confidently, well, I think I'm going to be okay because my kindergarten teacher on my last report card wrote, ready for first grade. Someone that Julietta trusts basically told her, you're ready for the expectations of first grade. And while it was nice to have them laid out, she was pretty confident. I can... I can live up to these expectations, no problem. My kindergarten teacher said, I'm, I'm ready. How do you view success in, in your life? When you're in school, when you're at your job, when you're at home, maybe you're on a sports team, maybe in retirement, how do you measure success? Well, it's not always the case, but most of the time it's directly connected to expectations. In school, when you know what's expected of you, 
and you do what's expected to you, then you see the results in grades and maybe degrees. If you're on a sports team and you do your job, maybe, maybe your team wins the game. Or maybe you win an individual award. Or maybe your team wins a championship at the end of the year. At your job, your boss lays out the expectations. If you live up to them, if you're on time, you do what's expected of you, you'll be rewarded, you're, you'll, you'll be successful. Maybe you're self-employed, you have to set your own expectations, but, but you still set them. This is what I expect of myself, this is what I expect of my, of my business. How about those of you who are in retirement now? What are your expectations? Maybe it's to, to do certain things, to, to see certain places. If you meet or exceed those expectations, does that mean success in retirement? How about in your marriage? I'd like to, to say these were all original thoughts. This is not. A lot of this comes from a pre-marriage class that I've been teaching for about 10 years now. In this class, towards the end, we ask the, the, the young bride and groom, or however old they may be, we want you to list out five expectations for your marriage. And there's an ultimatum. They're, they're not allowed to say things like, I expect you to be faithful to me. Now, that's a given because you're getting married. That's an expectation that we all have for every marriage. We're talking about things that might be unique to your marriage. If you grew up in a house where mom and dad did the, the household chores together, dishes, laundry, everything, you might have the expectation that it will be the same way in your marriage. Make that clear. Write that down. I expect that we're going to share all the household chores. Whatever your expectations may be, write them down, and then we come together the next time and we assess those expectations. First question we ask, is it reasonable? Sometimes we might have expectations that just aren't reasonable. We, we can't live up to them. Or we're setting up someone in our lives for failure. That's, it's not a possible expectation. First thing we want to know is, with your life, with your schedule, is this something that can actually be accomplished? And if we say yes, then we move on to more important questions like, is it God-pleasing? Is this a God-pleasing expectation? How beneficial will it be for your marriage? And the hope is that when they leave, both bride and groom have a list of at least five expectations that they both support and agree on that could be used as a barometer of sorts. Is the marriage going well? Is, there, is this successful? These are expectations we have. Can we live up to them? Of course, if you fail to live up to expectations, that can be pretty catastrophic. Is there anything harder for a child than to get that F back? and to try to come to grips with the fact that they failed at something, there was an expectation, and I didn't live up to it, and I don't know why. I don't know if I didn't do the work or if I just don't quite grasp the material, but I didn't live up to expectation. There's this big F that makes that very clear to me. Sports, you fail to live up to expectations. Maybe you cost your team a victory, and all eyes are on you. You're the one who failed. That can be pretty catastrophic. In the workplace, if you get fired because you didn't do what was expected, that, that can be destructive. In the home, in relationships, if husband and wife consistently fail to live up to expectations and trust is broken, 
If a marriage ends in divorce, that can be so destructive, it can impact countless individuals. And these are just examples of us failing to live up to expectations in life. It can be incredibly damaging. How much more so if we fail to live up to God's expectations? That's the issue at the heart of today's text. What does it mean to fail to live up to God's expectations? There's this expert in the law who comes to Jesus and he asks this question that seems to have some flaws in it itself. What must I do to inherit eternal life? He clearly doesn't understand the promise that God made to Abraham that Paul break, broke down in our, in our New Testament lesson. He thinks that he is able to do something to inherit eternal life. Jesus flips the question on him, this supposed expert in the law, and says, well, you tell me your understanding of God's law. What does it mean to you? And big surprise, the expert in the law actually knows what the law says. And he correctly answers. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, well, you got it. You want to know what you must do to inherit eternal life? There it is. Do this and you will live. But the expert, he wants to clarify God's expectations. He wants to make sure he's absolutely clear on what God does expect of him. And so he has this follow-up question. Well, what must I, or who is my neighbor? And that's where Jesus tells the parable. And it seems simple enough, right? There's a traveler. He's robbed and beaten within an inch of his life and left for dead. Three other travelers passing down the road. Two sneak around him. One stops and helps. And and how does he help? Well, he helps with what's most needed at that particular time by this particular man. The man needs his time. The man needs the passerby to stop and not worry so much about his own schedule but give some time to help. He does that. And then he takes some things of value that he has along that would be very helpful in this particular instance. Olive oil, definitely had value. Wine, definitely had value. He uses those items of value to treat the man's wounds. Then he takes more time. It takes him to an inn. And he cares for him there, but then he does have to go. So he leaves money, two days wages, with the innkeeper. And says, if you have more expenses, I'll cover those too. The injured man had a need. He had need for the passerby's time and even for some of the financial resources of that person who passed by. And so maybe we could stop right there and say, well, there you have it. What does it mean to love your neighbor? It means to be willing to serve them in their time of need. Whatever that might mean, I suppose. If they need your time, then you stop and give them your your time. If they need your your financial resources, then you give them your financial resources. If that's what your neighbor needs, then that's what you do. Unless you don't have time to give, right? And assuming you have material possessions to give, right? Right? What if your time is needed elsewhere? What if someone else needs your time? What if your money is needed elsewhere? What if someone else needs your money? Well, then what do you do? 
I think Jesus answers that question in the parable by the fact that the two people who sneak by are a priest and an expert in the law. You see, God had given very clear rules to his people about who could deal with a dead body, and if you did deal with a dead body, what would then happen to you? Take a listen to what God commands of priests in Leviticus chapter 21. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the priests, the sons of Aaron, and say to them, A priest must not make himself ceremonially unclean for any of his people who die, except for a close relative such as his mother or father, his son or daughter, his brother or an unmarried sister who's dependent on him since she has no husband. For her he may make himself unclean. He must not make himself unclean for people related to him by marriage and so defile himself. As this priest is traveling by in this story of Jesus and he sees a man left for dead, he has to consider that the man might die while he's caring for him. And Jesus has strictly forbidden priests. You cannot deal with dead bodies. Because if you do, you're ceremonially unclean for a minimum of seven days, and then you can't carry out your duty in the worship life of my people. God makes an exception for very close relatives. If it's mom, dad, brother, or unmarried sister, okay, you can stop what you're doing. We'll find a replacement for you temporarily. You can deal with that dead body. But this man's a stranger. If he were to die as the priest were, would help him, he would be breaking God's law. And don't think that wasn't a part of his decision-making process as he sneaks by. And same thing with the Levite. In Numbers chapter 19, God makes it very clear that anyone who touches a dead body is unclean for seven days. Whoever, teaches the de- whoever touches the dead body of anyone will be unclean for seven days. He must purify himself with the water on the third day and on the seventh day. Then he will be clean. But if he does not purify himself on the third and seventh days, he will not be clean. Whoever touches the dead body of anyone and fails to purify himself defiles the Lord's tabernacle. That person must be cut off from Israel because the water of cleansing has not been sprinkled on him. He's unclean. His uncleanness remains on him. I got to admit, when I was younger and I heard this parable, I often thought of the priest and the Levite. What a bunch of rotten guys. These are supposed to be the the church workers, the, the pastor, the elders. These are the people who are supposed to be serving in God's church on earth. If anyone would help someone in their time of need, you'd think it would be them. But that's not so simple. If the priest were to stop and help the man and he were to die, then he would be disobeying God's direct command. He'd be sinning. And by passing by the man and not helping him in his time of need, he would also be sinning. And the same thing could be said of the Levite. He had responsibilities in God's church too. Responsibilities that would have been very difficult for him to perform if he was out of the workforce for seven days. And so the same thought process would have been going through his mind as he sees the man injured and left for dead. Well, what happens if he dies? Sometimes we can't do it. Sometimes we're going to fail 
someone. By helping one, we'll fail to help another. By giving our time to to one person who needs us, we won't be able to give our time to someone else who also needs us. And if we give our financial possessions to the one, then we won't be able to give them to the other. And, And sometimes we might be sinning either way and caught in that really difficult position. And if you look at the Samaritan, Jesus tells the expert in the law, go and do likewise. Do this and you will live. And he uses the present tense, which means this command is with you every single moment for the rest of your life. It's always going to be in the present for you. So if if you live for another 30 years, you, you must do this every moment for the rest of your life. You must perfectly love all the time. It's impossible. What must I do to inherit eternal life? That's the question. That's the point of this whole parable. And what's Jesus' response? You must do it all, all the time, in every situation, for everyone. Can't be done. God's expectations are too high. They're so high we can't live up to them. It's, it's not possible. And that's terrifying. We ought to be huddled together with this expert in the law, shaking with fear. Because this is not an F on a test that can be rectified, done over, improved on, learned from. This is not a big life lesson where you, yeah, you got fired, but you're going to learn from it and it's, it's going to make you better in your next job. This is not even the, the pain of a, of a divorce or a, a lost championship where even then you can learn from your mistakes. You could grow. You can improve. You could be better the next time. No. This ought to cause us to tremble in fear because when we fail to live up to God's expectations, we're separated from him and his love forever and ever and there are no second chances. Failure to live up to God's expectations is hell, and it's certain. The question this expert in the law asks is a question that we dare not ever ask. Because if you think this way, if you try to function this way, you will be abandoned forever. Thank God there's salvation. After God's law beats us to a bloody pulp and leaves us for dead, the Son of God looks on us and has compassion. He has pity. He sees us in our helpless state and he comes to help. God sees fallen humanity. He saw it from the moment it happened with Adam and Eve. And he began to make promises, like the promise of inheritance that he made to Abraham, that his offspring, his singular offspring, would inherit a land. God's own son, the descendant of Abraham, came to this world and perfectly lived up to God's expectations every single moment of his life. He did what we cannot do. 
God's law never, ever found fault in him. He never failed. Jesus lived up to God's expectations perfectly every single moment of his life. And then he gave it all to rescue you. He didn't just give a little bit of his time. He didn't just give a little bit of his financial resources. He gave his very blood. The most precious thing in the world. The perfect blood of God's own son. He gave it all for the sins of the world. A precious balm to heal us. To forgive us once and for all. And he does this amazing thing. He doesn't just cleanse us, heal us of our, of our sin-inflicted wounds. No, he gives his perfect obedience to us. Where he lived up to God's expectations every single day, he gives that to you. He treats you and I as if we were the ones to live up to the perfect expectations. This is the gospel that God's own son looked on us, the helpless, left for dead sinner, and had compassion. He gave everything he had, his own innocent blood, and then he gave us his perfect life on top of it. And to prove that this is all true, he didn't just die, but he rose from the dead. Because it was our sins that caused his death, and the father says, they're gone, look. He's alive again forever and ever. And the promised inheritance of eternal life is now yours. Jesus lives. Believe it. What must I do to inherit eternal life? No, different question. What could I possibly do to say thank you to the God who's done all this for me? Can I pay him back? Absolutely not. What can I do to say thank you to him? to show him how grateful I am for all that he's done for me, for you, for the whole world? What can we do? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. When you see someone who is in need, give your time. Serve them as best you can. And when you see someone who needs your financial treasures, Give what you're able to give. Help in any way you can. And and when you find yourself caught, ah, my kids need me, but so does this person. And my my wife needs me, but, but so does this friend. Praise the Lord that your decision does not impact your eternity. Do the best you can. Try to help both if you can, but if you can't help one, help the other. And ask God to provide someone else to help the one you can't help. But you're free. You're at peace with God. Eternity is is yours. And so we walk out of here today at peace, knowing that it's not what we do that inherits us eternal life, but it's God's grace shown to us in his perfect son, Jesus. We get to leave leave here today free, free to serve our God and, and free to serve our neighbor. Let's say thank you to our God as best we can. He gets the credit all the time, even for our thanksgiving. Jesus' name be praised. Jesus' name be glorified. Amen.